Thank you so much, Melissa, and welcome to our panel about race and criminal justice in America. Ladies and gentlemen, it's hard to think of a more urgent topic of social policy than the one we're going to be discussing this morning. Here are some startling statistics to begin our discussion. With 2.3 million people in prison, the U.S. locks up a larger proportion of our population than any other country on the planet. America represents 5% of the global population, but 25% of the global prison population. But when you factor in the racial disparities, the statistics become even more shocking. About one out of three black men in their 20s are in prison, on probation, or on parole. At the current rates, one in three African-American men can expect to go to prison at some point in their lives, compared to one in six Hispanic men and one in 17 white men. Young black men are more likely to be in prison than in college, and in states like Florida, until recently, felony convictions meant that a third of black men could not vote. Now, at the same time that our prison problem seems more intractable than ever, there is fresh and innovative thinking, breaking free from the old categories that is transforming the debate about race and crime in America. And we have today to talk about it uh, three of the most distinguished participants in that debate in the country. This is not uh, exaggeration. When you see and hear what they have to say, I am sure that your views on this topic are going to be uh, transformed. We have, uh, uh, to my immediate right, Kamala Harris, the district attorney of the city and county of San Francisco. She won 98% of the vote, the first woman DA in San Francisco history, the first African-American woman in California to hold the office. She has a wonderful new book out called Smart on Crime, which encapsulates this third way that so many scholars and judges and public officials are beginning to uh, understand that it's not enough just to be tough on crime or soft on crime. You have to be smart on crime, and she's going to tell us how. Uh, in, in, in the center is uh, Mayor Kasim Reed of Atlanta. Anyone who heard Mayor Reed earlier this week um, in Aspen uh, at a Socrates dinner talk about his work in pension reform in Atlanta was convinced that this is one of the most dynamic and uh, creative and promising public officials in America. And I have been so excited to learn that he's brought the same creativity and effectiveness to the crime problem that he's bringing to the budget problem. And he is going to tell us how in Atlanta he is being smart on crime. And uh, to his right is Charles Ogletree, uh, well known to all of you as one of the most distinguished scholars of uh, race and the Constitution in America. He teaches at Harvard Law School. He's long been an advisor and a friend to presidents, and he's just written uh, an important new book, too, The Presumption of Guilt, The Arrest of Henry Louis Gates, Jr., and Race, Class, and Crime in America. Uh, so we have a lot to talk about, and Kamala, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, I know that you've done important work on recidivism, and the statistics on this are Startling, in many states, the majority of prison admissions comes not from arrest or new crimes, but from probation and parole violation. Nationwide, two-thirds of parolees fail to complete parole successfully. Tell us about the work that you've done on recidivism in California and how that ties into your approach of being smart on crime. Thank you. And, and I think you, you said it well that smart on crime should be motivated by recognizing that the two choices that we've accepted heretofore, soft on crime or tough on crime, are just inadequate to, to really 
force us to measure whether we are being effective with criminal justice policy. And I believe that if we think about being smart on crime, it's about recognizing that we should infuse metrics into um, our assessment of effective criminal justice policy. We should, instead of measuring criminal justice policy based on an adherence to tradition, instead adopt what the private sector has understood to be a, a better measure, which is a, looking at our return on investment. So uh, smart on crime is about that, and recidivism then is one of the biggest issues that I think must be addressed in America's criminal justice system. In California, for example, we release 120,000 prisoners a year because they have served their time. And within three years of their release, 70% recidivate, 70% reoffend. It's the highest recidivism rate in the country, but not by far. Most states have 60, 50% recidivism. So I decided to focus on this as an issue, one, because obviously it's just a, a design failure when you look at the statistics, but two, it, it costs us a lot. It costs us in terms of public resources, in a state where, which is on the verge of bankruptcy, and it costs us a lot in terms of public safety. So I designed an initiative um, that is called Back on Track, where I chose to focus on the 18 through 24-year-old first-time low-level nonviolent drug sales offender. That population, uh, because when I was at Howard University, when Mayor Reed was at Howard University, we were 18 through 24 as undergrads, and we were called college kids. But when you're in the system and you turn 18, you're considered an adult, regardless of the fact that that's the very phase of life in which we have invested billions of dollars in this world in those places called colleges and universities, knowing that that is the prime phase of life during which we mold and shape and develop a human being to become a productive adult. So essentially, I created an initiative that is a public-private partnership, which includes our Chamber of Commerce, it includes our labor council, in particular the building trades unions, and our faith-based um, churches and, and synagogues and others, and, and, and community-based organizations. And we address the fact that in this very large population of offender, many needed to get a GED and be enrolled in City College. Almost none have employable skills. So we enroll them in the apprenticeship programs offered by the carpenters and the plumbers we dealt with the fact that most of them are parents who have a natural desire to parent their children, but not necessarily the skill. So we brought on board faith-based leaders, community-based leaders, and we addressed all these issues. And over the course of the last five and a half years, we have reduced the recidivism for this population from 54% to less than 10%. Um, it's been so successful that the National District Attorneys Association and the United States Department of Justice have designated it as a model for innovation for law enforcement in the United States. And, and so I share that with you to say that I believe that that is a perfect antidote to what is ailing our criminal justice system, and it will address a lot of the issues that I think will be a subject of the conversation. And, and doing this work is not only, I think, right for many reasons that include looking at the capacity of human beings and, and, and allowing them to reach that capacity. It is not only right from a perspective that recognizes that a society should figure out how we can redirect the course of people who otherwise may potentially be leaders in a community, but it is also right when we look at it from a fiscal perspective. The reality of it is it costs me $10,000 every time I prosecute a felony. It costs us $35,000 a year to house someone in the county jail. It costs $50,000 a year to house someone in the state prison. 
And initiatives such as Back on Track only cost $5,000 per participant. So it just makes sense, I believe, from many perspectives that include a fiscal perspective and, and also when it comes to the goal that I think we should all have of shutting the revolving door of crime and in that way increasing public safety, which as the chief elected law enforcement officer of a major city in this country is really the reason that I do my work. <laughs> so. That's just fascinating. I mean, you've not only given us this um, uh, pragmatic reason for embracing uh, your approach, which reduces uh, prison readmissions, but also the, the, the fiscal reason. And I gather there's a budget crisis in California. A panel just ordered um, the state prison system to reduce the inmate population by tens of thousands That's of right. people. The legislators in California demanded a reduction in the prison budget of 1.2 bi right. billion dollars. So you, uh, regardless of whether... Uh, what people think of the politics of the approach, you've got to do it for financial reasons, and it seems like you're doing it well. And, and also to recognize that when, you know, it was on the front page of the paper across California for many months, you know, alarm that we uh, have a prison overcrowding situation and that the relief or the, the, the solution will be early re release of prisoners. And everyone, this was a problem. This was a problem that was hotly discussed and debated. Well, I would suggest to you it's not the problem, it's a symptom of the problem. And the problem is we have this revolving door, so we are growing this prison population because we are approaching criminal justice policy like ostriches in that we think that once we have convicted and locked someone up, we're done with that guy. But in fact, the average prison sentence in California is 24 months, which tells us two things. One, the average prisoner is being sentenced for nonviolent crime. Two, they're all coming out. And we have no meaningful criminal justice policy for keeping them out of the system once we release them. So they keep going back in, and they're just very expensive. Uh, Mayor Reed, you have a policy that might be described as smart on crime, too. It seems to combine elements of getting tough, threatening tougher sentences, and also uh, compassion and increasing legitimacy. Tell us about your approach. Well, that's because I called Kamala uh, Harris <laughs> when I started uh, developing my policy. I mean, fundamentally, I believe that uh, you have to secure a city. So I start from a point uh, in Atlanta of keeping people safe. And it is extremely personal to me, and I think the citizens of Atlanta know it. So during the time that I've been mayor with exactly the same uh, police force that we had before I, elect before I was elected, uh, we have reduced crime in every category 15 points and crime in major categories by 23 points as of last week. And I think it has to do with uh, paying personal attention to it. I care when someone in Atlanta uh, is harmed. And I, I don't allow race or any issue to be an excuse. Uh, that said, I think that once you secure the city and let people know uh, that you will not tolerate violence towards one another, it creates room to show your compassion and to do things uh, like provide quality training. But you cannot show compassion uh, when people in the city don't feel safe, because candidly, I don't think people want to hear it. People don't want to hear about being compassionate uh, to other individuals and helping them along when they're having their doors kicked in and they're being held at gunpoint and folks are being placed in trunks and robbed. We were having some very bad things happen in our city. So I felt my first responsibility was to create uh, a sense of calm and to let people know that there was a very firm hand on the wheel and we started pushing our crime numbers down. But we paired that with an effort 
uh, to reinvest in what used to be recreation centers, and now we're turning them in to what I call centers of hope. Because what I was seeing was the ages of young people in the city of Atlanta who were committing crimes was dropping from 18 to 17, from 16 to 15, and 14 to 13. And when I looked at it, what I realized is that we had taken away uh, the network that used to invest and take care and provide for our young people. So I'm a public school kid. So a few years ago, somebody made the judgment that it was smart uh, to close uh, two-thirds of the recreation centers in the city of Atlanta in some of the most challenged neighborhoods. Well, what, is a, what does a kid do that has absolutely nothing to do? Well, I had that, and when you walk around Atlanta, people will always talk about where, you know, where I used to play ball or where I used to study, but we snatched that away from a generation of young people, and then we were stunned when we saw a spike in crime. When any one of those centers used to help 1,500 or 1,700 kids. And then you would go back to those neighborhoods and you'd see weeds growing up in those neighborhoods. That sends a signal to communities about how you feel about them, which makes them want to do something to you. So in, in Atlanta, we have this wonderful campus of universities called the Atlanta University Center. And Morehouse and Spelman College and Clark Atlanta and ITC are there. And we have Georgia Tech and Emory and great universities. Now, when I was a kid, we would look at those gates and say, you know, I can't wait to go to college. That's so exciting. The Kappas are stepping and the AKs. This is so exciting. Well, when you shut off that path, kids look at that gate and see somebody that they want to harm, somebody that they want to do something to. So the first thing we did was to secure the city. And then the second thing we did was to let folks know in no uncertain terms that we were going to invest in young people in a different way, that we were going to train people that had been in a part of the system, which is an idea and a concept that I did get from Kamala Harris, and that we were going to put our money where our mouth is. Being strong alone will not carry the day. If all you are is tough, you will lose the public will, and you will certainly lose support in the black community. But what I will also share with you is there used to be this difference when you talked about crime in the white community and you talked about crime in the black community. There was a, a reaction in the black community that felt that you should be a little kinder, a little gentler, and you could take some political hits there. I will tell you that in Atlanta, that is not the case now. People are not having it. They're not having it in the black community and they're not having it in the white community. Now, if you secure me, I will have the second and the third conversation. But you're not going to come in my house when my door's been kicked in and my family's been put in jeopardy and tell me about what you're going to do for somebody else. And if you lose that will, then I don't think that you will be able to do the reforms uh, that we think about and talk about in places like Aspen and the rest. So as I hear you talk about it, Mayor Reed, you're combining elements of the tough on crime and soft on crime approaches. You told me that you were calling up individual judges and saying, why are your sentences so right. short? You've got to actually lock these people up. These are serious, horrific crimes. Yeah. And you ensured that 911 calls were responded to within seconds. Yeah. But at the same time, you convinced the African-American community you were on their side, you were going to invest in them. 
This coincides with a lot of the new thinking about uh, the way why people obey the law, which suggests that people are most likely to obey when they trust the legitimacy of the government that is handing out the sentences. Right. And there's this, there's this fascinating new book, American Homicide says, the homicide rate is decreased when people trust the government is stable and unbiased and believe in the legitimacy of the officials who run it, and that the... Uh, rates go in the other direction when, when people don't trust the legitimacy. Is that an important part of things? You're right. I don't send mixed messages. We had 200 criminals that had, that had robbed, committed 2,000 burglaries. So I personally started calling the judges and asked why we were having the light sentences for burglaries, which were running rampant. And I personally got involved with the DA, and we started coordinating, and now you're seeing uh, stiffer sentences. But every time we do something hard, we do something that shows our heart and our compassion because you, you simply can't uh, do this thing where, where you are simply hard. You will lose the public will. And once you lose the public will, many of our friends uh, from the left will make you politically vulnerable. And if you don't have the public support, you can't reform. Professor Ogletree, what do you think about this new way, this third way you've been hearing about and this approach on legitimacy? I'm fascinated to hear how this fits into your, your book on the Gates arrest, because I imagine that uh, one thing uh, African-Americans did not feel in the wake of that arrest was that the cops were on their side and they can trust that they were right. biased. I, Jeff, thank you, and I, I'm glad that I'm uh, placed on the far right so that <laughs> my moderate positions will be understood today. Um, uh, three things. One, uh, it, it's great that you have my friends, uh, Mayor Kasim Reed and uh, Kamala Harris, who are Harvard gradu- uh, Howard graduates, uh, which created the most important landmark uh, legal decision to level the playing field, Brown versus Board of Education, Thurgood Marshall, Oliver Hill, uh, Robert Carter, and others who led that. And so Howard is ground one for the work needs to be done when it was a different time in terms of crime and justice. Number two, and, and they, they both may be running for other offices. I have to be careful while I say this, but they do have progressive agendas that make a difference. Now, progressive is not li- liberal. It's not left. Progressive is thinking ahead and preventive as opposed to reacting to what happens. And the progressive agenda is that we can't just be uh, hard on crime. We have to be smart about crime. Uh, and those in the audience know I've been writing about this for 22 years. No one's read it, but I've been writing about this for 20, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, but it, it's now, it's a voice in the wilderness now being heard, and it's being heard in interesting points. And here's why there's legitimacy. Both Georgia and California, California's my home state, have a crisis, an economic crisis in their, uh, their uh, systems, but definitely criminal justice system. People are being released. Uh, uh, programs are being underfunded. Uh, and, and it's a different way to look at it. It's a crisis that's created this new approach uh, to uh, uh, thinking about crime in an important way. But what makes it so important, and I quarrel with one of the pieces of data you gave. You say there are more African Americans in jail than in school and colleges. That's wrong. Uh, that, that's been going around a long time. There are more in colleges than in jail, which is a good sign. Uh, but it means it's not enough. Uh, and the legitimacy comes when people begin to respect and see the government as serving the interests of the public. Everybody wants to be safe. Everybody wants to be free from crime. Uh, and our problem is that we have created a model that forces uh, Mayor Reed uh, and, and Kamala Harris to respond to a problem we've created. They're talking about 18-year-olds. They're talking about adults. They're talking about even juveniles. But who cares about the kid who's born in zero to five? who starts behind before they even start uh, elementary school or kindergarten, who cares about the kids who are being pushed out of school, not because they're violent, but because they're, the way they're reacting to authority, but no one's taught that kid all those values. Who cares about the young people 
who find themselves uh, not loved and appreciated and respected by teachers or, or nurtured by parents, and they come into a, a, a public school system failing. We all had mentors, uh, people who told us things, don't do this, go here, don't go there. And we've lost that sense of a community mentorship. Mrs. Bill, she's still alive, God bless her, in my hometown, she would take me and smack me in a minute when I did something wrong, right? Right, right. And, and I, I said, you don't even know me that well, Mrs. Bill, but I know, boy, you shouldn't be doing this, right? Uh, what's important is that that sense of value, and I want to say this to this audience, it's not about race. It's not about race, because people from every uh, walk of life can be mentors and role models. So don't say... I'm in the suburbs, I'm in a gated community, I'm the higher class, I can't do anything. You can. How many of our kids that you see in the, in the criminal justice system have not been to a museum, have not been to a library, have not been to a park, have no idea about wet science labs, no idea about planning a band, have not traveled outside their own community? Those are things we take for granted, but that's part of the divisive. My point is that what they're doing is absolutely essential moving forward, but as a society, we have to start from birth uh, until they get into school. If we miss those first five years, we've made a, tr- a tremendous error in trying to uh, save our children. And th- the idea that government should be transparent, that we believe in what government says, makes all the difference. Because there are a lot of young black men who see, well, yeah, Professor Gates got out, no charges, dis- you know, charges dismissed, that's great. But they say, I can't call three. I can't get a lawyer. I can't get justice. And so we've got to fix the, the legitimacy is that how can everyone say, even if I committed a crime, I'm going to be treated fairly, or if I've not committed a crime, I'm not going to be subjected to the criminal justice because of what I wear, what I look like, the neighborhood I live in, the car I'm driving. Those are some of the presumptions of guilt that we need to uh, address in a very meaningful way, and I'm glad that this mayor and this public official in San Francisco are doing those things right now, right in their cities. Does it have to be done on a local level? Uh, Kamala's doing it in San Francisco. The mayor's doing it in Atlanta. There are these great programs in Hawaii where judges are sitting down with parole offenders and saying, uh, we need punishments that are swift, certain, and mild. Basically, instead of uh, uh, overlooking a lot of probation violations and then threatening to revoke probation and lock you up forever, we're going to call all the offenders into our courtroom saying, if you test dirty for drugs, you're going to get locked up tomorrow, but only for a couple days. And in Hawaii, Judge Am tried that, and the violations went down uh, 93%. Do you actually have to sit down with the affected communities, look them in the eye, and convince them that the cops and the government officials are on their side? It's yes and yes. I mean, early intervention makes all the difference. You have to keep them out of the system. That's the one thing, right? And give them a sense. And there are some great judges who've done that, the idea that I'm giving you the opportunity to make something different. But judges can't get them back into schools when they've been out for six or seven or eight or nine months. They can't get them jobs because they have an arrest record, forget about the conviction record. Uh, they can't get them health care, uh, even though they may need it to sort of uh, have that balance. They can't get them a place to live, because we can't go back to Nana's house once we've lost that opportunity. And so the judge's jobs are overwhelming as well. So that's where the community intervention early on makes an enormous amount of difference. But local control is important. And we've got the federal guidelines, we've got the state guidelines, but locally, what can I do that's best for Jamal, that's going to make Jamal an important and productive member of our community? And the forgiveness. Uh, What happens when someone makes a mistake? Is there an opportunity? I'm not talking about homicide, but there are a whole series of people who commit mistakes uh, of youth uh, indiscretion, and, and can they be given a second chance? And how do we create that? In fact, they shouldn't be coming to the prosecutor's office. There should be a mediation process short of prosecution uh, that addresses a lot of these uh, common problems that could be addressed without 
more incarceration, more costs, and forcing us, uh, whether in Georgia or in California or elsewhere, to release people, not because we're saying they've done the right amount of time. We can't afford to have them locked up. We can't afford it. Right? We're not saying you're, you're now free to go. We're saying we, don't, don't, we can't give you a check. We can't give you a job. We can't give you a place to live. Right? So it is a solution, but it's a tactic, not a strategy. The strategy is to reach that young person before they are in the system and while they're in it to give them an alternative outside the system other than simply incarceration or punishment. Kamala, you talked about the uh, uh, sort of soft parts of the recidivism approach. Do you have tough parts as well, threatening stronger sentences or sureness of punishment? There's no soft like part. That? There's no soft part. No, there's no soft part. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I think that a number of topics, we could talk about this all afternoon, all day. Um, first of all, I, I agree completely that it, it has been a myth, especially for Democrats around criminal justice policy, um, that, that communities of color, poor communities don't want law enforcement. Absolutely not true. true. They do. They don't want racial profiling. They don't want excessive force, but absolutely want law enforcement and consequence for crime, as the mayor has said. And so when we look at what we're doing in terms of creating smarter criminal justice policy, we have to understand that people must be held accountable. In creating Back on Track, um, there was part of the defense community and our progressive community in San Francisco who did not want to agree with me when I said I'm going to require that in order for someone to be in this program, the offender has to plead guilty. Well, they are guilty, and I'm going to make them plead guilty. They know they're guilty. And if we're going to walk into this program in an honest way, let's all put it on the table. But I held off sentencing, and they are... And if they complete the program after 12 to 18 months, then I dismiss the charges against them. But I'm not going to revisit the question of whether they're guilty if they mess up because they were guilty. I think part of the problem in, in how these programs have sometimes been rolled out and have therefore not been successful is that the standard has been fairly low. You know, the beauty of human nature, I believe, is that if you set a high bar for people and allow them to achieve that bar, they reach for it. If you don't think much of people and you don't expect much of them, they know that. They're not stupid. They may be uneducated. They're not stupid. And they won't try and reach it. And so the tough part, if you will, is that, well, I know that you have a brain, so you have to get enrolled in a GED program. And then in City College, you can't graduate unless you've at least earned a GED. I know you have skills that you can, can, can develop, so you're going to go to a, a program where we're going to develop your soft skills, which means you have to show up on time because people assess your, your character based on what time you walk in the door, and we're going to build up these skills. I know you can be a better parent, so that means let's talk about the fact that you didn't like to see the principal when you were a kid, but you better go see that principal about your child creating high standards and what we've seen as success. But there's an, another initiative to, to Charles' point that, that I think is really important, which is the, child, the younger child and focusing on that. And one area for me has been, um, coming, been because I did an assessment of who our homicide victims were who were under the age of 25 when they were killed. And I learned that 94% of them were high school dropouts. So then when I went over to the school district and asked the superintendent what's going on, I learned that over 40% of our chronically and habitually truant kids are elementary school children. And I'm talking about elementary school children who have missed 50, 60, 80 days of a 180-day school year. So 
like your, the woman in your neighborhood, you know, a, Mrs. Frances Wilson, God rest her soul, my first grade teacher attended my law school graduation. I would not be here without my education. I decided I was done. So talk about being tough in San Francisco. I said, well, I've decided I'm gonna start prosecuting parents for truancy. Some people wanted to run me out of town. And, but knowing the carrot and stick that we have in law enforcement, I said, yeah, I'm gonna start prosecuting if we can't fix this. And what we then did is we created a court, a truancy court, where a judge would bring in the parents to ask the question, what's going on? to learn that there are services offered by the school district that the parent didn't know about. It was a matter of bringing in the social worker who's responsible for watching that child and the social worker then shaking in their boots because the person in the black robe says, why haven't you been doing your job? Bringing in teachers, asking the same question. How are you keeping track of and records about attendance rates to learn that the, the, the process was completely flawed? And over the course of this initiative, we've improved attendance for these children by 30% over the last almost three years because we have focused on this as a big issue instead of a small issue, recognizing that the cost to California, University of California, Santa Barbara did a study, annual cost, $1.1 billion for truancy to California. Associated cost, including public services, including public health, upward of $20 billion a year for truancy. So understanding that these small issues are not so small just because they're small people. They're in fact very big issues in terms of the fiscal impact, the impact to public safety, and the impact to just community as a whole in terms of workforce development and everything that we need to do to be competitive as a country in terms of having a skilled um, workforce. Mayor Reed, what do you think on this subject? We were discussing how shocking it is that crimes are increasingly being committed by teens, some as young as 12 or 13 years old. But what are you doing in Atlanta to address that, that problem? Well, one, uh, we're going to invest in young people and we're going to place them at the center of our culture in a way that we haven't before. What I like about uh, local government, what I love about being mayor, I spent 11 years of my life in the state senate and in the state house, but when you're in local government, you can move. You have the ability of speed and you have the ability to determine in a very rapid fashion whether or not you're delivering concrete results and you get feedback faster. You know, the public sees their mayor all of the time, so the feedback on what you're doing um, is constant. There is no question uh, in the city of Atlanta that young people in Atlanta are not getting what I got. So when I got elected and did my inaugural address, I said, you know, I'm a public school kid that went to the local elementary school, the local high school, um, with no extra help, went to Howard University, knew in Howard Law, came home, became a lawyer, and all of this stuff, just in the ordinary course of life, and 40 years later became mayor. So the question that we have to ask ourselves, is that really possible today? Can a young black male in the city of Atlanta, with no special help, just parents and family that loved them and invested in them, and a community that nurtured them, take us forward? The question, the straight answer to that question is, is that that is not the case. So we're going to invest uh, in a new way. And what we did was we decided to take these former recreation centers and turn them into more than warehouses for kids. And so now they're going to be open till 8 o'clock at night. They're going to have character training. They're going to have world-class technology. They're going to have tutorials. And parents are going to know where their children are, and I'm going to make sure that they're absolutely safe no matter what. 
Now, then we got the council to invest in the seed corn. And then we went out and got the private, uh, the private sector and the funding, funding community to give me, I didn't go and ask them for a check. I said, I want you to give me the five most talented people who can tell me how to build boys and girls so that we don't have to mend men and women, and I don't want to create another government program. Well, I mean, they were shocked because when I walked in, they were holding the check to write one check. They thought they were going to write one check, right, and get away. But no. What we needed was expertise. And see, I could have run a political operation and, and high-fived everybody and opened up the rec centers and act like we had done something special. But without the intellectual power and muscle, I wouldn't be doing anything but creating another recreation center. So people would say, well, when are you going to create these centers of hope? They become centers of hope when they transform lives. So now the funding community sees that we, put, we have skin in the game. And I didn't come to them for a check. I came to them for smart people so that I create something special. That gives me the ability to then go to council, put another 100 police on the street, raise police salaries by three and a half points, and have the city support me. We did a hard thing and a soft thing at the very same time, exactly together. And it allows me to be out and with young people. See, I'm a big believer in will. So I think all, so much of this stuff that we make complicated, I just don't buy it. I think the will of people who really live this stuff and believe it is so uh, valuable to changing the condition around. You know, we're, when you look around this room, more than anything else, more than race, geography, place of birth, and all of the rest, is our access to education and a nurturing environment. If you rip that out of a city, what have you done? That's what we've done. And we're not investing in the places where we should. And when you are a mayor, you have a moment to do it. Another night, I said, I run a West Coast office. I think when you have these jobs, like the professor, like Kamala, you have a finite amount of time to shape things and change them and run it full speed. I came out here to get ideas and to be nourished so when I get back, we can implement, implement these things and give a model that the nation could use. And it's a bigger issue. You know, I agree with the professor. It is a much bigger issue than the issue of race. The fact of the matter is, is the United States of America can no longer have an African-American and a Latino community that's mediocre and average because the country's in a global co competition. But when is the last time you've looked in the face of a poor black kid or a poor Latino kid and said, you know what? Your outcome is important to America <laughs> because we can't carry you anymore. There can be no weak links in this chain anymore. That's when I think we will move the needle. That's when we will change this country. Professor Ogletree, how do you implement this inspiring vision at the national level? As I listen to the mayor and to Kamala Harris, it just has to be done at the local level, talking to individual cops block by block, street by street. You can build legitimacy in some places. Then you go to Oakland, and I know you're writing about this, where there's a verdict expected in the trial of a, a white police officer accused of shooting a black man. The police there are expecting riots because there's so little trust between the community and the police. 
Does the fact that we have an African-American president and an African-American attorney general not matter for, in terms of legitimacy because it really has to be done at the local level? And if you don't have that trust at the local level, you're just not going to have an effective policy? Well, Jeff, I, I think it's, it's important, uh, and I think it's great that we have uh, uh, Barack Obama's our president and Eric Holder, I think, speaking later this week as our attorney general. That, th those are unprecedented historic events. It says a lot about this country and our uh, ability to move forward. Uh, I had a forum on this uh, topic about individual uh, and community responsibility last year, and my friend Eugene Rivers made this point, how important it is to have President Barack Obama in the White House. It really shows we're making some progress. He says, but as we sit here, we have to be aware of the fact that we have one black man in the White House. We have one million black men in prison. Uh, so we've got a lot of problems that we have to address. And, and, and my sense is that we've got to address them. It's not either national or local. It's both and. And let me give you some sense. Uh, I, I write a lot about the court, and the, and the court makes my job easy by writing opinions that I can easily critique. But there's some good things that they say. Uh, it's, this conservative Supreme Court uh, decided uh, within the last decade that we're no longer going to execute people who are juveniles across the board. That was a sign about you know, what our society is about. Justice O'Connor wrote an opinion in 2003, seven years ago, saying that diversity is an important factor in education. Uh, that's important. Uh, the Supreme Court just recently said uh, that uh, we're not going to uh, punish juveniles uh, with uh, life without the possibility of parole. We don't know what, when this person's 17 what they're going to be doing when they're 57. And that, I mean, it's, it's the court making a broad pronouncement on a narrow issue, but it tells us that they too are looking at it. That's the broader issue. We need the court to do that. But on the local issue, uh, uh, my institute has been involved in trying to step in front of the district attorney, in front of the mayor, or saying let's prevent these problems uh, by nipping them in the bud before. And here's what has to happen. Uh, we wrote a report called No More Children Left Behind Bars. It's on our website. It's charleshamiltonhouston.org, charleshamiltonhouston.org. Why do we write it? Because we use the word again, smart on crime, not tough on crime, and treatment and prevention, not punishment. Uh, and, and that's so important because a lot of the young people are forced into that system. They don't have what we had. All of us, every one of us are better than our grandparents, mm -hmm. right? And, and they, they were smart and hardworking, but they couldn't be where we went. They couldn't go to places we attended, right? And that's why we have to force this idea that it is possible. The second thing is that we can't assume that public schools are always a failure. Many of us are products of public schools. My wife and my kids are all products, and myself are products of public schools, because the, 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 the slogan, if you build them, they will come. If you have good schools, wherever they are, people will come. Ask Jeffrey Canada. He went in the hardest place imaginable, Harlem, uh, and created uh, exceptional schools. But it wasn't just for the children. It was for the family. You can't think about children's abilities without thinking about family skills and parenting skills. And one final thing, the reason why it's local. Uh, and Kamala was right talking about the idea of uh, looking at parents and maybe punishing them for truancy. Let me tell you about a case in southern Maryland. Hard-working, single African-American parent, every morning got up at 5 o'clock, prepared breakfast for her children, and left because she had to go drive from southern Maryland to D.C. to work you know, almost an hour. And as far as she knew, her children were going to the corner, getting on the bus, going to school. She gets a notice two months later that her uh, son has missed 30 days of school. And the reflection is, what kind of parent are you? She says, I'm a hardworking, diligent, responsible parent. I, I feed my kids. I send them to school. I'm working hard. She had no idea. So it's, sometimes the system is broke. 
And we have to figure out how to, how can a school system let a kid miss 30 days, let alone five days, without alarming somebody? Something simple at the local level that we need to think about. Parent-teacher meetings. Well, it's at 5 o'clock on Thursday. Well, you know, I've got to feed the kids. Can you do it at 7 o'clock? Or can you provide food? Have you thought about doing it a day? I mean, just the idea of being much more flexible makes an enormous amount of difference in what we can do. And finally, this, Jeff, the situation that's about to happen with the verdict in Oakland is just a reminder that we are not there yet because people in uh, urban communities are fearful of the police, and they should not be if there's a better relationship between the communities and the police, number one. It happened in Los Angeles with Rodney King in 1992. Uh, I hope it doesn't happen with Oscar Grant. But if it does happen, it means that we have not done what we need to do. When President Clinton was president, he initiated this wonderful conversation with John Hope Franklin, a conversation about race in America. It was a good idea. Now, here is the problem. I wrote an article. None of you read it either. But uh, uh, the President Clinton saying, uh, uh, you know, this is very important to have this conversation on race. But here's what I said. If you open the wounds to have a conversation about race, you have to be there to provide the suture to heal them, treat them. You can't have me talk candidly about race and then not have a program or an idea about how I can take these ideas forward. The same thing will happen, whatever the verdict may be uh, in Los Angeles for the Oakland case. It's not going to solve the frustrations because people are angry at something because no one's listened to them. And they seem to think the only reaction is a riot or a disturbance when it really is jobs, health care, education, uh, and housing. If we address those issues, make a real difference. So it is local, but it also means that we can't point to someone else. As the mayor said, we have to point to each other. All of us can do something, not just write a check, but find a way to get involved, even where people don't want to see you or want to hear you. You have to be a part of the conversation because everyone's going to learn from those difficult conversations about how we can move forward as a society. That's great. Kamala wants to respond. So two points that I think are about everything, and I, and I have read many of them, just so you know. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> The ink was well worth it. Uh, so a couple things. One, uh, on the issue of truancy, for example, okay, it, and, and, and we are here to also talk about, obviously, race. So um, I was just in Sacramento two weeks ago because I wrote a piece of legislation that I'm trying to get passed that would allow a prosecutor to prosecute this issue of truancy when it comes to the parent, the focus being on the elementary and middle school student, not the high school student. That's a whole different pathology. But to allow us to prosecute it, not just as contributing to the delinquency of the minor, but, but specifically in the penal code, articulating this issue of truancy. And in particular, I have asked that the way it would read is that currently truancy is defined as five or more unexcused absences. Okay? We all probably have children who have missed, you know, maybe with an excuse, but that many days. But when we're talking 50, 60 days of a 180-day school year, we're talking about a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm suggesting that the education code and then by adoption the penal code define a new term, which is chronic truancy, defined as the child missing 10% or more of the school year. Because then, just like any early warning system, you know, that's red light territory where we really need to sound the alarms. Well, one of the legislative analysts for one of our progressive members of the legislature, wrote an opinion and a response, which included their objection because this was imputing a white middle-class value on this issue. So I went off. 
And I did. Because what are we saying? It is, a, it, is a, it is beyond class, beyond race, beyond ethnicity. It is a value for us as Americans to educate our children. And to suggest that somehow there is a disparity in standards around that because of race is absolutely outrageous. Now, the situation, thank you. And so, but then, of course, we get to the point of then asking, what is the cause, right? When you say that this is a big issue, that this child is missing so much school, then you naturally ask, what is the reason? And then you get into the reason, and hopefully the first response is to support the parent to do what they naturally want to do, which is educate their child. On the issue of, of the Meserly verdict in Oakland, and um, the issue of communities' trust of law enforcement. I will speak, having been raised in the African-American community and also as a career prosecutor with over 20 years' experience, working shoulder-to-shoulder, side-by-side with cops. Distrust of law enforcement is one of the biggest challenges to both communities and law enforcement and is extremely prevalent in this country and manifests itself in a number of ways that are all harmful to communities and society as a whole. One, there is the stop snitching phenomenon. Horrible. One of the cases that I prosecuted involved a a young person who was killed, and then the person who decided to testify against him was killed. And so I convened a bunch of our faith-based leaders, and the press wanted to know what it was about. No, we're closing the door, and we had a meeting where with a lot of the the folks in the room, I said, listen, when we are doing the sermon over that funeral that unfortunately happens about twice a week where the victim is a young African-American man or Latino man under the age of 25, we've got to say, community, when it comes to killing another human being, folks have got to step up. It may be one thing to say we don't want to participate in a system that disproportionately incarcerates young African Americans or Latinos. But when people are literally getting away with murder, we cannot agree that it is the code that you do not participate with law enforcement because you don't trust law enforcement. Separately, the conversation with law enforcement. Look, there are communities that because they are an immigrant community perhaps where the country of origin had very corrupt law enforcement, and so there's distrust. There's a distrust um, in the LGBT community in San Francisco because a history of distrust and profiling from, from law enforcement in the African-American and Latino communities, same thing. There are reasons that communities distrust law enforcement. You may not agree with it, but it exists. And it's a problem for law enforcement for a number of reasons, two in particular. One, officer safety. Two, for any law enforcement officer to do their job, it is to make sure that a guilty person faces a consequence. But if people will not come forward and report crime or be witnesses, then the justice system cannot actually do its job. So for both of those reasons, it is incumbent on law enforcement as well as the community to proactively work on this issue instead of just exist with some mild form of acceptance that there will be this distrust and we'll somehow get beyond it. And, um, and I believe that, that there has to be more leadership from both ends to say that we have got to mend these relationships in the best interest of all. 
And that means recognizing, again, no one accepts and would tolerate and support racial profiling or excessive force. And no one should accept the fact that a murderer will go free without consequence when they have killed an innocent victim. Jess, let me intercede just a second before you uh, go to questions. Uh, and Kamala and I have worked on this because we convened a group of district attorneys from around the country. And it's a hard issue because the district attorneys are responsible for reducing crime, but they also have to look forward to how do we uh, have some transparency within the community. Uh, and the good sense about it is that having people of different points of view come together to solve problems. That's one of the big ideas, that there's no left and right, no defense and prosecution. There's a problem-solving network that's important. And the second thing on the local level is my wife, Pam Ogletree, runs a program at the Children's Services of Roxbury called uh, LPP, uh, I mean, I mean P, uh, L YPP, Youth to Police Partnership, right. YPP, <laughs> Youth to Police Partnership. And here are kids who are Latino and African-American boys and girls from preteens to teens who meet every week with police. Uh, and they talk about issues of problem solving, crime prevention, and they are against the idea of the, the, the whole quote, no snitching. Because I said, you're not snitching, you're a witness or a victim. Right. You're testifying based on what you know. And, and these kids are interested in careers in law enforcement, and they are the outcasts in their communities. But they actually are revolutionaries, right? To start thinking about law enforcement when they're teenagers tells you something about them, and some of them are in college now, et cetera. But that's what it takes, uh, courageous young people. We can't do it, but for them to say, you know, go and testify, go and be a witness, we have your protection, not only police, but we have your back. We're not going to let you be assailed by the community. That's the kind of one tiny step uh, in the right direction because it's right. Uh, and, that, and the community will see, ah, uh, then the people who are guilty of being punished and the people who uh, need to testify are able to do that without uh, uh, reprisal. And the community is better off by being safe from crime rather than being fearful in that sense. And so that's the big idea. How do we come together? And you know what it is? It's not us. It's the young people behind us who can see there's a path other than you know, punishment uh, and crime, and it's a path toward what we've had, education, mentorship, and opportunity that makes all the difference in the world. Uh, thank you for these innovative ideas about getting smart on crime and transcending the old categories of uh, tough and soft on crime. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have just a couple of minutes for questions, and I'd like to invite them. Uh, yes, ma'am, right here. Do you need a microphone? If you could wait to talk and, and uh, thank you so much. It's very fascinating and educational, but nobody has mentioned the effect of, of drugs on, and the war on drugs on, on crime in the United States. Would you talk about that a little bit? The war on drugs is a failure. Um, and <laughs> it, 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 was, it was reactive in design. And... Um, and, we have, and we're paying a price for it. You know, the, if you look, if, if I share with you, and, and any DA will share with you that, that our caseload of our office, probably 60% of my cases, are drug-related. And now, drug crime is not monolithic also, let's be clear. There is everything from someone who is committing the crime of being under the influence to the person who is in the business of trafficking large quantities of, of drugs while they are carrying a gun and are a member of a gang. 
And, um, and so we must recognize that part of the failure has been that we have had a one-size-fits-all approach to drug crime instead of recognizing the pathologies that are at play for those very distinct and different types of drug crime. Uh, one movement that happened and is now probably, we're probably 20 years into it, is the drug court movement. And so that was recognizing that if we don't deal with the underlying cause that's so very apparent, we are going to just be stuck in cycles. The, the fact being that people who are committing repeat petty thefts, car burglaries, things of this nature, are actually doing it to fuel their drug addiction. So drug court suppose that what we will do is, one, again, hold them accountable, because they did commit a crime, but as part of the punishment, there will be a, a very strong component that will address their substance abuse issues and get them into substance abuse counseling. And we've seen good success with that. Back on Track, my initiative is focused on a different type of drug crime, which is the low-level, first-time, low-level um, drug sales offender. And let me tell you who that is. It is often the person who is, in, and, and by the way, the, the population I'm focused on, they're not eligible if they had a gun. They're not eligible if they have been um, affiliated with a gang. But there's still a whole lot of them. And who are they? They range from what I've seen as a single mom who's trying to hold down a job who just lost it, who thought she could go and sell some drugs on the corner for like a week and make some money. I have had a number of veterans who have come back from Iraq and Afghanistan who came back, couldn't figure out what to do, needed to make some money. And let's remember that when they get that first conviction, they are a felon for life, right? So this is a very distinct subpopulation of, of who is in the criminal justice system for a drug-related crime. Then there is, again, like I said, the more serious offender. And I think that we have to have a different approach for each, recognizing, again, what is at play. But we cannot be blind to the fact that um, we have not done enough in terms of treating substance abuse. We have also not done anything that is meaningful in the criminal justice system to deal with mental health. You know, I would suggest to you something we haven't talked about, we talked about in an earlier panel. Children who are growing up in a home where there's domestic violence, Children are going up in a home where outside they hear gunfire every night. We expect those children to go to school the next day and learn. They're not. They're experiencing trauma. They're often experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. It is a physiological condition. We must address it before that child engages in self-destructive behaviors at best and more likely behaviors that are destructive of their community. And you know what people who have experienced trauma do because it is the healthy response? They try to not feel the pain, so they self-medicate. And what you will find with, for example, 90% of the women who are in the state prison system is that one, they were victims of child sexual assault. Two, they, as a result of dealing with that trauma, have self-medicated their entire lives and have committed crimes that are associated with that, be it prostitution or petty theft and a number of other issues. We have got to deal with the, the, the trauma that ex it is experienced by people who have been victims of crime that may cause them to then be offenders in the system and cost us so much more than it would cost us to otherwise get them appropriate mental health and substance abuse treatment. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Um, because I very much would like to see Kamala elected Attorney General of California, I'm not going to address, <laughs> I'm not going to address this question to you. So, gentlemen, oh, good. because so much, 
I vote for her, no question about it. <laughs> um, because so much of crime is due to uh, drug issues, especially um, use and personal use uh, and sale or purchase for personal use. Um, do you believe that the country or state by state should take a look at once and for all legalizing possession of marijuana? I'll go first. I think it's important to take a look at it. I think California is actually one of the states that's moved quite rapidly in that issue. But to say take a look at it, I'm still old school and very concerned about a community that may not be ready for that as a response. It's not that it's a bad idea. It's a great idea. It's a very good idea. But my sense is that how do you take the punishment out of crime, and that's one way, but two, also, do you, how do you uh, avoid people uh, from running the risk of addiction, which is very serious? And I've seen it from uh, classmates from middle school, uh, high school, to college, to professional school. Um, and my sense is that is uh, take a look at it and see if it makes sense, but also uh, do it in a way that's going to help the community rather than harm it in some serious way. I'm not sure that it's going to stop punishment uh, for other things, and that's what worries me about uh, that solution, whether it's a solution or just a, a Band-Aid on a bigger problem. I can take the moderator's prerogative to protect the mayor, who has to be reelected too, if you'd like. I don't believe uh, that you should uh, legalize it. Uh, and the reason I don't is because I, I don't think that it is the people that we think of who function well. I think it is the weakest people in the community, which we already have a great deal of work to do in order to get them to become functioning parts of our society. That if we allow that to happen, that it will make uh, parts of our community where people already have challenges, uh, have more challenges. It's not the people um, that, that many of us think of. And, uh, and I'm not willing to risk it. And I don't think that the benefit uh, would be worth it. Uh, so I would not be for it. Um, because I just, you know, it's, it's interesting. There have been a number of people in Atlanta, I think gaming is an example. There have been a number of people who want me to support gaming in Atlanta, and I oppose that. And the reason that I do is because I walked into a casino in uh, Detroit, Michigan, which isn't Las Vegas, Nevada. And I saw a row of people who had just gotten off work, and they still had on their Ford IDs. And they were ga gambling in the casino in, in Detroit. And I knew at that moment that I would never support it in the city of Atlanta. Not because, not because, not being holier than now or anything like that. I just think that uh, I didn't want to be a part of an effort in the city of Atlanta to facilitate something that I think at the end of the day is more of a detriment than is a good. And as long as I'm mayor, I get to make that judgment. Yeah, we have time, I'm afraid, for just one more question. And yes, uh, ma'am, right there. Hi, Ellen Sabin. I really appreciate, um, Charles, that you brought up early education and zero through five and think that's, you know, prevention, um, the greatest idea. And I'm curious, and, and as well in Atlanta, I know there's been a big effort for the playgrounds and acknowledging the effort of focusing on children. I'm curious if there's been successful projects in Atlanta or in Boston or in San Francisco that have um, really done grassroots work and proved successful in early intervention on character education that have shown de deterrence. 
It's a great question, and let me give you a very brief answer. One of my uh, mentees who's presenting here later, uh, uh, Professor Roland Fryer, an African-American economist from Harvard, uh, uh, wrote a report a few years ago looking at the intelligence level between uh, one-year-old black and white babies and concluded that there is no difference in their uh, intellectual development. Uh, it changes when you start going from two to five. Why? Because the environment changes. Right, which tells you if we do something between zero and five, it makes an enormous amount of difference, number one. And number two, Jeffrey Canada's working with babies. I don't want to keep citing Jeffrey, but it's just a, one example of local level. Number three, we have lost great programs. Remember something called ABC, which is not about the alphabet, but better chance? How fundamental it was when parents could say, I may not have the resources, but getting my child into education mode very early. Four, it's remarkable how many adults in this audience, I don't want to show of hands, start reading to their kids when they're one. My wife did that with both of our children, and it's, I'm saying, they don't understand. She said, yes, they do. Right? And they start repeating it back when I'm trying to read it. Now, Dad, that's not what it says. You skipped a line. <laughs> so my, my sense of let me get to the topic, right? So it tells me early intervention matters, and it's not the big program. It's just enabling a parent to have books making reading fun, making children exciting about learning, making it, them think that there's nothing they can't do, that you don't need a billion dollars. You need one parent or surrogate to say, I'm going to read to this kid uh, until they turn blue in the face because it means that they are learning something that will be an indispensable tool. Programs are important. Uh, they're underfunded, uh, largely unavailable, over, uh, understaffed, etc. But the idea is that we can do it. You know what? It doesn't have to be just us doing it to our kids. But the idea to get parents to bring children to daycare centers and other centers when they're young, and we come in and volunteer. I want to read to kids or go through the alphabet when they're young. And this, to me, I would not be here today. I would not have been able to go to Stanford, Harvard Law School, be a tenured professor, if I didn't have the encouragement that, as a young kid going to my, my neighborhood uh, library, as a kid and getting these little gold stars every time I read a book, and I said, I want some more, some more. But I learned how to go beyond that segregated community, beyond the fact that we're on welfare, beyond the limits of parents who didn't finish high school. And it was reading more than anything else, nurturing, mentoring. It was reading that was the fundamental difference between life and, I would say, death. Uh, and so for me, there's no option but to intervene early and often and that we take a stake in the future of our children's success. Ladies and gentlemen, we began by saying that the prison problem was our most intractable problem, but what I have found so encouraging about this remarkable discussion is its optimism. We've learned that the problem results from a crisis of legitimacy, but that crisis really can be addressed practical step by practical step with the help of inspiring public officials uh, such as the one you've seen and scholars. Please join me in thanking them for a great discussion. <laughs>